The Neurodivergent Woman podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Livock, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. So welcome to today's episode of the podcast. Um, Just a fair warning, both Monique and I are sick. So (laughs) you might hear our very sexy, sick voices today. Um, So just fair warning, um, we are recording remotely over Zoom for anyone worried about germ sharing. Um, <laughs> we, we do like hanging out, but not that intensely. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're self-quarantined at the moment. Yeah, yeah exactly. So today's episode is going to be about friendships and female friendships in particular. This has been a super requested topic by listeners following on from the episode we did in season one around relationships. And yeah, people really want to know about how to make friends, how to form friendships, keep friendships, maintain friendships and navigate all the different elements in terms of conflict uh, resolution, how to choose uh, safe friends, setting boundaries. I mean, there's so much content we could go into around this subject. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we could do a whole season on friendships and relationships, essentially. Um, But yeah, a couple of things that we thought we'd focus on for today is firstly, starting off, uh, just chatting about how friendships are formed. So how we can form and maintain friendships. And some of the issues that come up there, um, particularly in the kind of neurodivergent space or things that we've heard listeners ask for a little bit more information and expansion around. Um, So we're going to be talking about that side of things. So forming and maintaining relationships. And then the other really big factor that Monique and I wanted to spend a bit of time diving into today is how actually our attachment style, our triggers, trauma history, all of that, how that can actually impact friendships. Because when we were talking about it, we sort of realized that trauma and attachment stuff and triggers gets a lot of airtime when we're thinking about romantic relationships and relationships with caregivers and parents and children. But actually it also has a big impact on our friendships as well. And what we found both personally and then in our professional life as well is that sometimes if you're not aware that a particular trauma or trigger for you is coming up in a friendship dynamic, rather than actually engaging in a relationship repair, so we're going to talk about and unpack what that actually is um, in our episode today. But rather than repairing that relationship, like you might do if it was a romantic relationship, friendships tend to just peter out. 
at that point. And so we wanted to really unpack how those things play into a friendship relationship and what particular factors we want to keep in mind when we're thinking about um, rupture and repair in friendship. Yeah, then we're going to have a bit of a deep dive into chatting about boundaries. So how to choose who you want to become friends with, how to choose safe people, what are your boundaries around friendships? Because again, I think a lot of the literature and a lot of talk in therapy is around romantic relationships and setting boundaries um, and having healthy relationships and then around family as well. So around parents, caregivers, family members, But there's really, I think, a a lack of literature around friendships, Um, again, whether you're neurotypical or neurodivergent. So when I think about initiating friendships, uh, if you don't have as many friendships as what you would like, first of all, because again, I do think with neurotypical culture, there is an assumption that everyone should have a group of friends, you know, like to be happy in life, you need to have five to eight friends. Um, And if you don't want that group that you're hanging out with all the time, then there's, there's an assumption that like, oh, like that's weird or there's something wrong with you. But, you know, I've met neurodivergent people and neurodivergent women who are like, I'm quite happy with my own company. And if I could have maybe one really good quality friendship or even two, then that would be enough to fill my um, friendship needs. And other than that, being very content with maybe their cat or dog, um, the animals in their lives, maybe a partner, maybe their children, because everyone has different needs in terms of friendship. And I think that's the number one place to start off and assess for yourself. What are your actual needs rather than what society is telling you are your needs? And number two, how much of those needs met for you at the moment? You know, do you feel like you would like additional friendships? And are you willing to put effort and energy into that as well? Yeah. And I think that's such a good point about how much effort and energy we have capacity for. And I also think that changes through the lifespan as well in maybe your teen years or your 20s when you've got less, I guess, occupational or family or kind of other demands going on. You maybe then have more capacity to put energy into more friendships and to maintain those friendships. But as we get older, you know, other things take our energy and take our capacity, particularly if you've got kids. And that's okay to actually just have less capacity for friendships and for your friendship needs to change. Like I even for myself feel like I've gotten, um, you know, as I've gotten older, I've needed less quantity of friends, whereas I've got really good quality friends now, but there's a fewer number of them. Yeah, 100%. I remember when I was younger, there were times where I really wanted more friends. There were times where I didn't have many friends. And then there were times where I was okay, just kind of being by myself and doing my own thing. And I didn't actually you know, really want more people in my life because I didn't have the energy for it at the time. But yeah, I think as I got older and acquired more skills at, you know, making and maintaining friendships and resolving conflicts and things like that, I actually ended up with more friendships than what I could actually keep up with. And then, yeah, I've actually had to kind of reduce the amount of people that I've hung out with because I just found it was burning me out. So yeah, it's all about like, what do you want? What's your capacity? 
And in terms of, I guess, across the lifespan, I do think that unfortunately, because of caring demands, a lot of women lose friendships, especially in their 30s and 40s, when, you know, they're having children and they're going through really intense periods, like the first five years of having your kids is very intense and often there's not a lot of room for established friendships or new making new friendships on top of that. And then when your children go through different developmental periods, like the teenage years, a lot of people's time is taken up with taking the kids to different activities and meeting the kids' needs. And men in general, um, and I'm talking about neurotypical men here, are actually better at making time for and keeping their adult friendships going. Often, you know, you'll find uh, men going away for the weekend, for a sports weekend or playing golf together every week and really kind of bonding over those activity-based, you know, friendship activities, I guess, whereas women tend to put themselves last and I'm making generalizations here, but yeah, there is a trend that, you know, women are expected to take on that caregiving role and then, lose the time and energy to take care of themselves and actually maintain their friendships. And then unfortunately what happens is when people get into their 40s and 50s and maybe if their kids have gained more independence, there's a period where they have maybe a bit more time and capacity or maybe they don't. And yeah, like it can be quite a lonely period for a lot of women, whereas men have been able to keep that, those friendships up because of those, I guess, the way society is set up that women take on a lot of the caregiving burden. And I wonder if a big contributor to that, you know, to men being able to maintain some of their friendships uh, more easily or readily than women through, particularly through that early childhood period when there's a really high caregiving load, is the different expectations and demands placed on female friendships versus male friendships. So as you mentioned, Monique, male friendships tend to be activity-based. You know, we're going to go do this thing. We're going to talk about this particular thing. Whereas female friendships, there's the expectation of so much emotional energy invested into it. So male friendships where, you know, they tend to talk about interests or hobbies or activities, or they're actually doing one of those things while they're spending time together. Female friendships, the expectation is, you know, you just sit down and you talk and it's quite um, emotionally intense or it can be. And sometimes that's really wonderful. You know, that's fantastic. And I think that's something that a lot of men, um, particularly heterosexual men, can actually miss out on to their detriment. You know, that really supportive, nurturing friendship where your friend knows everything about you and is able to talk about all those things with you. But on the other hand, it also requires an absolute ton of emotional energy. And men often get that from their female partner if they're in a straight relationship, whereas the female partner is often trying to give that to her male partner, give that to her children, and then she doesn't really have anything left over to give to friends as well. And that's where I think, well, that's one of the contributors that I think we can see to the deterioration in female friendships during that really early childhood period. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I think about my husband, he will spend time with friends. He actually doesn't, I guess spend as much time with friends as what I do. I put a lot more effort into regularly catching up with my friends, whereas he might only see them every three months or like maybe every 
six months and they all get together. But what happens is they all get together and watch like Formula One car racing and drink beer, or they get together and go cycling together or sailing together. And then he has this ballroom dancing group that he goes to several times a week and does his ballroom dancing classes. And he gets a lot of his social needs met at his ballroom dancing studio, but it's all activity based and it's all you're talking about basically that interest or you're not talking at all and you're actually doing what we call a side to side activity you're not front facing you're not like face on with each other talking to each other you're side to side focusing on an activity and that's actually what a lot of neurodivergent people do um, in terms of yeah how they socialize and I, I totally identify with what you say there Michelle like there's been times in my life where I'd love to catch up with friends but the thought of going and doing a deep and meaningful chat which I usually really love and enjoy and like analyzing you know content and like what's going on for people but sometimes there's been times where I've been really burned out and I can't do that and so actually going like what I love to do is go and have a spa day where you go hang out in the spa, in the sauna, you're relaxing together, you're getting massages, you're getting your nails done, but you're not actually talking a lot to Mm. each other. Mm. Or going for a bushwalk where you're focused on like nature or doing like an activity together, like doing a Pilates or a yoga class together where you're spending time together, but it's not talking about the issues, you know, that are going on for you or venting about things emotionally. Um, Yeah. Like sometimes there are periods in your life where you may not have the spoon to that. And I think in really good friendships where you've built up trust and you trust each other, sometimes you can actually say that and go, Hey, I'm really burned out at the moment. Can we do a low spoons activity and just chill out? And like one of my favorite activities is to watch a movie together because you're not looking at each other. You're watching what's going on on the screen. You can have a laugh together about the movie or watch like a favorite show, but it's really low social impact, I guess. It doesn't take a lot of spoons. I totally agree and definitely uh, second the movie as a really nice way just to hang out and chill because it gives you something to talk about too when you feel like exactly as you described, Monique, I've I've had a very simple similar experiences, you know, at different points in my life, right? Where it's like, oh my God, I really want to hang out. But the thought of actually sitting and talking about how I feel, exhausting. I just want to watch something silly and have a giggle and then leave. Yeah, totally. And I think in in good friendships, you you can say those things to each other and actually mm-hmm. be honest about what you need in terms of going, I really want to see you. I'd love to hang out with you. Like this friendship's important to me, but like maybe this month I'm really low energy and like I need to do something chill. Is that okay? Yeah, I, I think that's that's great advice. And I ultimately it, it really all comes back to these kind of society-wide and neurotypical and gendered expectations of how we think a female friendship should look and how it should be structured. And part of that is, as both Monique and I have said, part of that is, you know, enjoyable, right? Like I, both of us, I think do enjoy those relationships where we can have really deep conversations, deep interactions, but I think it is worth noting the emotional toll that that takes. And if you've got minimal capacity because of other things going on in your life, it's actually okay to find a different way to connect with, with people that you want to maintain the relationship with. 
And then the other key take home um, there being really thinking honestly about how many friendships you actually want and have capacity for and that being okay as well. Yeah. And I I think with that, even just having a think about how often you have the energy to actually catch up with someone face-to-face, like the phases of life that you're in. I've had friendships where there's been phases where we've both been more free and able to catch up face-to-face. And then other phases where one or both people have been really busy under the pump with child caring duties or work duties. And we've just sent each other an occasional text, but the trust has been built up in the relationship to know that we're still okay. And it's just a busy period. We'll get through it. And then when we both have time and energy, we'll reconnect. So sometimes it's being able to give people space and know that it's not the relationship petering out or not make the assumption that either of you don't care. It's just that you both have your own lives. You both have your own needs and it's giving each other grace, I guess, in the, in the relationship. Yeah. So for me personally, um, there'll be some friendships out there where people are texting or messaging each other every day or several times a day. And to me, that is just way too much. That's way too much intensity. As an autistic person, I just can't see the point of like talking that much every day to someone. Like I don't even do that with my partner. Um, yeah, I don't know, but for some people that might be really meaningful and really necessary for them. And they would get a lot of, I don't know, joy out of that level of interaction and maybe a lot of meaning and connection and emotional support out of it. But to me, that would be too draining. So I think even just having a think about like, again, what are you willing to give in a relationship? Like, what's your preference? What are you willing to I guess, get back from the other person? And are you actually compatible in terms of what you both want from a friendship? Are you going to be the type of friends that message each other once every couple of weeks and maybe catch up once a month or once every two months? Or does the person that you want to be friends with, do they want to catch up every week? And do you have capacity for that? Really good things to think about. And I think the answer to those questions can be different depending on the person, because I have friendships of all those different types that you just described. Like I have some friends where it's exactly that, like we maybe won't uh, speak for like two months or something, but not because there's anything wrong or there's anything the matter. Um, And these friends, actually some of my closest friends, right? And then when we do connect and we do catch up, everything's exactly the same right? But it's just, that's the pace and the intensity at which we are compatible together. Then I have other friends where we'll send each other like reels or memes every day. And that's the level that we interact and that we're kind of compatible with. Then I've got other friends where it's more sort of in the middle where we'll maybe text once or twice a week, maybe catch up once a fortnight, right? So I think something that's really important to be thinking about is in any relationship, there's actually three entities. There's you, there's me, and then there's the relationship. And so the entity that's formed between two people is totally different depending on who those two people are, right? And you can have different relationship types with different people. It's really just about thinking, what types of relationships do I have capacity for? And how many different types of these relationships do I have capacity for? So for example, you might have capacity for one text every day relationship and that's it 
right? So that's that spot filled. <laughs> and then you might be like, okay, now I, I would like my other relationships to be more of that. Let's catch up once every couple of months and do an activity or, you know, whatever the case might be. So it's really just about thinking, what's the entity that's created between me and this person in particular? Is this a relationship that I enjoy and that the other person enjoys and that we're able to meet each other's needs? And how many of these types of relationships do I have capacity for overall? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, something to think about too is that any one friendship isn't going to meet all of your needs. You know, there'll be different types of friendships that you'll have. And I think it's healthy to have more than one type or more than one intensity and to have, I guess, realistic and different expectations based on the type of friendship that you have with different people in your life. Every relationship that you have it's, it's supposed to be a mutual exchange and particularly with friendships, friendships as an adult is the one I'd say relationship that you probably do have the most control in, like in terms of it's supposed to be a mutual relationship and you're not really obliged to each other. It's supposed to be two people coming together because they like each other. They want to hang out and spend time there's good faith there, but you don't owe each other. I guess you're not forced to have to be in that relationship with each other if you don't want to. Whereas I think sometimes with other relationships, like for example, with family, there is more of a sense of obligation because you're related to each other, you know, or with parents or siblings or extended family. Um, and then with children, there's more expectations there and more obligations there. So it's important to know that with friendships, it really is a voluntary contract that you enter into with each other. Yeah, look, that has actually been one of the best pieces of wisdom that I've absorbed as I've gotten older. And it's actually really uh, contributed positively to the maintenance of a couple of my really long-term friendships where a huge part of the friction in, you know, I'm thinking about a particular friendship here, a really big part of the friction in that friendship was just not having the right expectations of the friendship. So putting that person in the wrong box, trying to get that person to meet a particular need that I had that that person wasn't capable of meeting. That person was very capable of meeting other needs that I had. And once I put that person in the right box, amazing. We have a fantastic friendship because as you said, Monique, friendships are mutual and reciprocal and we both needed to be aware of what we both had capacity to give and what needs we could both meet in each other. And once we got to a point where, you know, we kind of both agreed on the same thing implicitly, it actually massively improved our friendship dynamic and, and the health of our friendship. Yeah, I think that's such a good point because one of the friction points that can come into friendships is around needs or expectations changing, like as you go through different phases of your life. So for example, there might be someone that you've been friends with since high school. And then maybe as you get later into your twenties or thirties, you might grow and change as a person and they might grow and change as a person. And you may no longer actually be compatible as friends. You might want different things from the relationship or Someone might have less to give than what they previously did. And I think one of the biggest things that can be challenging if you're autistic too is accepting that people change. 
that situations change and friendships and relationships can change. And that can be really scary because people are unpredictable sometimes. I've personally had friendships that I thought would last forever, that we'd be lifelong friends as we were both navigating maybe big life changes. It became so that we weren't compatible with each other anymore. And it was really difficult to let go, um, I guess, of that expectation that we would be friends forever and that the relationship had changed and that we had both changed as people as well, um, going into new phases in our lives. And I do think it's important to acknowledge that neurotypical people as well, like there can be a period of grieving changes in a friendship or the loss of a friendship. But I think in particular for autistic people, it can take longer to maybe process that change. Like it can take years to actually really process the ending of a friendship or a relationship. And that's that can be normal, you know, for autistic people. I've had autistic people beat themselves up going, you know, why is it taking me five years to get over this, this breakup or a friendship loss? And yeah, it can take a really long time to do that grieving and come to terms with, with the new situation. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful point, you know, just having those expectations um, set up for how long it can take to process, you know, a transition in a friendship and not to make every episode about Esther Perel, but um, she has this great quote that's about romantic relationships, but she talks about how, you know, over our lifetime, we might have, um, or it's normal to have two to three kind of really great um, relationships, like love relationships. And then she adds, and often that's with the same person. And the point there being that it's really normal for people to change. And as part of that change for the entity that is the relationship, remember we talked about you, me, and the relationship, for that entity of the relationship to change as well. And if, you know, it's someone that you do want to have a long-term relationship with or long-term friendship with, sometimes that's about both going through that process of transition and then working out what the new relationship between you both looks like. But sometimes actually that's just the end. And sometimes that's the end of a relationship with someone. So Regardless of which way you go, even if you're transitioning into a new relationship with the same person or you're ending a relationship with someone, be really gentle with yourself over those transition periods because it is really difficult. Yeah, I think in particular, like with female friendships, often there is a lot of emotional support and emotional depth in the relationship. And sometimes you may actually be getting more emotional support from your female friends than actually from your partner if you're in a heterosexual relationship so yeah it can be like a really big breakup and I think too like if you can kind of navigate those transitions with open communication and talk through it with each other I think for autistic people that can make it more predictable you know one of the ways of making well that I found as well for making relationships more um, for making like change more tolerable in general is trying to find a pattern or some sort of predictability within the change because change is so hard to tolerate sometimes. And yeah, like being able to openly talk through with each other if your friendship is changing or if you feel like one person's needs aren't getting met and problem solving that together, that can help take some of the, I guess, unpredictability out of it and help you take some power back in terms of, okay, well, what can we do about this? 
but sometimes there's nothing you can do. And that can be really hard to accept as well. And I know for a lot of autistic women and people that I've worked with, it's sometimes the friendships that have come to an abrupt end where there has been no communication previously, like that there were problems in the friendship or things had changed. And then the person just, I guess, abruptly leaves the relationship or ghosts you that can actually be the hardest to come to terms with because there's no closure. There's no why there's no explanation. And, um, you know, that's really difficult because I think for anybody, but in particular autistic people, knowing the why that something's happened can actually help you process the emotions um, and the trauma of what's happened. And, you know, maybe shorten the length of time that you're grieving that friendship or relationship. I think information is really important in helping people process experiences. For sure. And what I see often as the issue there is most people don't actually know how to communicate the why or what's going on for them. So the situation you just described, Monique, I think a lot of the time it's caused by one person consistently feeling like their needs are not being met, building resentment, not knowing how to communicate that or being conflict averse. So they don't want to engage in an open discussion or open communication about what's going on. It then builds to this point where that person has then completely disengaged from the relationship, unbeknownst to the other person in the relationship, in the friendship. And then that person's just like, okay, I'm out. And that person's no longer emotionally invested in that relationship. And that is so hard. It's so hard to have someone abruptly just say, I no longer want to be in relationship with you. And ultimately, I think this comes back to a broader systemic issue of people not knowing how to communicate or how to engage in healthy conflict resolution or healthy conflict problem solving skills. Yeah, I think it's definitely a skill that's missing from society. Like again, whether you're neurotypical or whether you're neurodivergent. And often I think a confounding or a contributing uh, factor when we've got neurotypical neurodivergent relationships and when people don't know their neurotype as well or the neurotypes of their friends, what can often happen is the neurotypical person and part of what builds in that resentment can be the neurotypical person thinks that the neurodivergent person does get it because the neurotypical person thinks, oh, I've been giving all of these neurotypical communication cues as to what I'm feeling, what's going on for me, why, you know, this is or isn't working for me. And that person is not picking up on them. And so if you don't know the why, right, if you don't know people's neurotypes, then the assumption is often, well, they're not doing that because they don't care about me or because they're a horrible person or because they're selfish or because, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever reason. And then that can lead to that neurotypical person disengaging from the relationship when ultimately what's happened is a miscommunication issue. The neurodivergent person was not aware of all of these things that the neurotypical person thought that they were. So, you know, knowing each other's neurotype, knowing how our brains are set up, open communication and developing conflict resolution skills, I think is all really, really important. Yeah, I think it's important to do that regardless of neurotype because you know the double empathy theory which we have talked about on the podcast before does say that if you are friends with or making a friendship with someone else who is neurodivergent that it's likely that there will be less communication errors because of having the same neurotype 
that doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be free of communication errors. And it doesn't mean that either of you are going to have good communication skills. It just means that if it's a neurotypical like and neurodivergent friendship, you're going to have all the same stuff going on, but just sort of the added weight, I think, of cross-cultural differences. So maybe some more opportunities for um, like misinterpretation of things. So I think even if you have a friendship that's across neurotypes or within your own neurotype, it is actually a good skill to have to check in with each other and clarify, hey, like, is this what you meant when you kind of said X, Y, Z, I'm just want to check in to make sure that I'm understanding you correctly. And regardless of neurotype, that's super helpful to have, like, and regardless of relationship type as well. And I often will do that with people to check in and make sure, like, are we on the same page? That's such a important point to make because, you know, we often hear from listeners and from clients as well, when we talk about, you know, the double empathy problem, people saying, okay, well, that makes sense. But then why is it that, you know, say I'm a friends with other neurodivergent people and we're still having these conflicts and these issues. And I think you put it so well there, Monique. It's it's not that the double empathy problem means that you know, if you're communicating within your neurotype, there's no communication issues. It just means that the cross-cultural communication barrier is not there. It's kind of like the same thing when we talk about privilege, right? Privilege doesn't mean that you have never had any issues or problems in your life. It just means that this particular area that you experience privilege in isn't an added problem or an added barrier for you. So yeah, the skill development aspect of it is huge. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, I think within the double empathy theory, you may be more naturally attracted to potentially other neurodivergent people. For example, I I would say the majority of my friendships that are like long lasting friendships are with other psychologists who are neurodivergent. I think, Michelle, you're my only neurotypical friend. Um, (laughs) Yeah, congratulations. (laughs) Um, And I I guess, yeah, like being friends with psychologists often comes with benefits in that we all do know how to communicate and have like we're trained in communication skills and checking in with each other and having that open communication that I really like and prefer like being honest with each other rather than waiting for things to build up until they become a problem but yeah I I guess even within you know neurotypes there's been times where I've been frustrated for example when I've been in my really rigid autistic brain and like even within my romantic relationship you know my husband's notorious for running late all the time um, or being forgetful and yeah like sometimes those things can be frustrating even if you fall, like if you're both neurodivergent, but you fall predominantly within, I guess, like um, like I'm mainly autistically dominant and he's probably more like, I don't know, ADHD dominant, even though we're both AUDHD is. Yeah, like you can get definitely frustrated and need to communicate around things that might frustrate you with each other in terms of friendships and relationships, even if you're both neurodivergent. Brains can get very noisy, 
I tend to go through phases in what's most helpful in quieting that noise and recentering. And at the moment, I've been gravitating towards music and soundscapes, slowly making my way through a huge library on the Calm app. And I've been trying to get better at having a more peaceful morning routine. And I've definitely found that the morning playlists really help a lot with that, actually. Yeah, I think most people think of meditation as the only way we can ground ourselves and quiet our brain, but sound and music are actually so helpful. What's really cool about the music and sound library on Calm is the variety. They've got playlists for times of the day and certain moods, soundscapes, and even alpha wave and bilateral stimulation tracks, which can be incredibly effective at helping you to emotionally regulate and getting your brain in a sleep-ready state. For sure. My favourites at the moment are the Disney soundscapes. So they've got things like An Evening in Jasmine's Garden, Merida's Mystical Scottish Forest, um, as well as other ones that you'd expect, like Rolling Thunderstorms and the like. The Calm app puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com forward slash neuro, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription. And new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash neuro. Go to calm.com slash neuro for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash neuro. So we've talked about quite a few things to consider when we're thinking about um, maintaining friendships and how friendships can evolve and change over time. We wanted to just take a step back now and go kind of right back to the start of friendships and chat a little bit about that initiation phase. So how do we actually go about making new friends or deepening our relationship with people who may be acquaintances, but we want them to be friends? So something that I find kind of interesting when I look back on how we were taught to think about the evolution of friendships, um, and even really early in my clinical practice working with uh, neurodivergent kids, we really are given this very neurotypical structure for how a friendship is, in quotes, supposed to evolve, which really is this kind of stepping stone process where you go from, you know, stranger to acquaintance, to second tier friend, to closer tier friend, to, you know, best friend or partner, to family or whatever. So it's kind of this really linear uh, process of going from not really knowing someone very well to knowing them really well and being good friends with them. Now, I think in general, that can be a helpful structure to keep in mind, particularly when we think about boundaries. And we're going to talk more about boundaries a little bit later today. But something that's really interesting is that neurodivergent friendships don't usually or don't always follow that progression. Monique, I'm wondering if you can share with us your take on on some of the differences between how a neurodivergent friendship might evolve versus that linear model. Yeah, I think with that over time in that linear model, you're building trust, vulnerability and intimacy with the other person over like a, I guess, six to 12 months or one to two years in the initial stages of the friendship. Whereas with neurodivergent friendships, 
what I've noticed is usually you might meet someone like maybe through friends of friends or at a hobby or an activity that you're doing that's related to your interest. And what might happen is you stumble onto a topic that you both start to get really excited talking about because it touches maybe on, you know, your autistic special interest or the ADHD person's hyperfixation that they've had in the past or now. And you might start really getting into deep conversations, sharing a lot about yourself, talking about the interest really intensely, getting excited. And you might end up having a one to two hour in-depth conversation with each other at that social event or that hobby that you're doing together. And you might walk away thinking, yep, that person's my friend. And so you've kind of skipped that six to 12 months of relationship building that two neurotypical people might do with each other over time. And you've, you've dived straight into going from a stranger to an acquaintance to then a friend and feeling really close with each other. And it can be a really exhilarating, awesome feeling, but it also means that, you know, unless you're aware of boundaries and maybe flags to look out for, like around, is this person actually a good or safe person for me to be friends with? That person may not actually be compatible with you long-term, or there may be some unhealthy flags there that you didn't pick up on where you might become more vulnerable to potentially being taken advantage of. It's interesting that you describe that sort of feeling of exhilaration when you're engaged in this sort of really in-depth conversation that's really meaningful, really interesting. It's about something which we know neurodivergent conversation tends to be. It has that sort of flavor and that function. And I think where sometimes the danger potentially can come from if you're someone who regularly experiences other people kind of crossing your boundaries or maybe taking advantage of you or maybe um, you know preying on vulnerabilities that you've shared is that that kind of intensity of feeling that you're having when you're engaging in that really interesting conversation can sometimes be conflated with a feeling of safety in the relationship because you feel so excited and so connected to that person you also feel a sense of safety with that person. Whereas maybe they might be a safe person and maybe they might not be. So ultimately, I don't think it's realistic or appropriate or functional, right? To say that a neurodivergent person has to always follow a neurotypical linear progression of friendship route. Um, You know, some of the most kind of intense and amazing and wonderful friendships for lots of neurodivergent people are exactly as you described, Monique, and they are safe relationships. I think something that we want to be keeping in mind is how do we actually identify those flags for non-safe people and how do we put into practice just some initial boundaries in those situations where it's like what do I want to share uh, with this person that I've just met and what do I maybe just want to wait a while and see how the relationship unfolds, get to know them a little bit better before I share these particular details about myself or my life. Yeah, I I think that's a good point. Like I often love to info dump and trade information and, you know, all of that. And it, it can be really good to share information about your favorite topic, but there may be certain aspects of stuff that you would maybe only share with a best friend or family or your therapist, people you have that you have established that sense of trust and safety and intimacy 
transparency and vulnerability with. What I would do is I would adopt a wait and watch attitude in terms of, you know, let's info dump about this stuff. This is really fun. This is cool. I think this person has good potential to maybe be a friend. But first I need to check, A, do they want something more than this really cool two or three hour interaction? B, like, do they have capacity for that? Like, is it realistic in terms of do they live close by? Would it be like an online friendship? Do they have capacity for that? And C, it would be like, okay, cool. If we want to catch up after this and the other person's open to that, let's see how things go. And maybe after a few months, because I think it does take probably six months to a year to actually really get to know someone deeply and properly, to be honest. Maybe then I can share that really vulnerable information that I would only share with someone that I'm really close to. And that doesn't necessarily mean being a bad friend. It actually means that you're protecting yourself and you're, you're having that boundary that you feel comfortable with. And at the end of the day, whatever boundaries you have with people, it needs to be what you feel comfortable with. Yeah. And because boundaries are there to keep you safe, right? Mm -hmm. They're like the wall that's there to keep you safe. And with boundaries, you know, we want to find that middle ground of not having Fort Knox and not having an open field, right? We want a sturdy fence, but with a gate. So, you know, yeah. we can let some people sort of in. And I think that's a really good strategy that you shared there, Monique, that kind of wait and watch and let's sort of see how this evolves. And still having that really um, strong enjoyment of the connection over the shared interest, but being mindful of some of the things that you want to have that boundary for. So for me, I think two key red flags are people who immediately want to trauma bond. So immediately, maybe on that first meeting, want to tell you everything about really in-depth, detailed, and quite upsetting experiences that they've had and expect you to share that back with them. While it can be really validating to share experiences with people who've also had a similar experience to you. When we talk about things that are really emotionally intense with people that we haven't built that trust up with yet, it has that similar effect of almost tricking your mammal brain into thinking that they're safe and into feeling that sense of connection, deep connection and deep trust with them. And what that often snowballs into then is them placing demands on your time, on your energy, on your emotional availability that maybe you don't have capacity for, or maybe you're not close enough with them for that to be reasonable. So I would be really watchful of people who are wanting to trauma bond immediately and people who are asking things of you that are exceeding your capacity and getting upset if you do set a boundary or if you do put something in place that says, actually, I don't have capacity to do this thing right now, or actually that doesn't really work for me. Let's, let's do it this way. If there's a really intense negative reaction to that or stonewalling or a complete withdrawal of their engagement to you, then that's a red flag. That's a flag that that person is wanting more from you than they're willing to give back to you. Yeah, I guess for me, it's like a flag that the person maybe hasn't done the work on themselves to figure out what are healthy boundaries and like what are reasonable demands in a relationship. 
Because usually if you put down a, a boundary with someone and say, oh, sorry, I can't do that or no, I'm uncomfortable, you know, with what you're asking of me um, or I don't think that's a reasonable thing for you to ask of me, sometimes people might be a bit upset with that, but they might accept that's your decision, that's your boundary, even though they may not like it, they may respect it. And then there may be people who try to emotionally manipulate you or guilt trip you into still giving them what they want. And I think that's crossing the line. And it just might be that that person may need to work on like their own stuff around self-regulation and meeting their own needs and codependency and stuff like that. Because I do think that there is a lot of trauma in the neurodivergent community. It can feel really natural to trauma dump when you meet someone else that you know may maybe is neurodivergent and has a similar traumatic experience to you but I guess it's just good to know that may not always be healthy and you really need to be looking out for yourself and making sure that you're not making yourself more vulnerable in that situation than maybe you need to be and it's sort of like gradually forming relationships in your life where you can talk about things that have happened to you and receive emotional support but that it's mutual and reciprocal and like it's in a healthy boundaried way. And it's just for your own self-protection. I mean, you can go do what, what you want, like, <laughs> like you're, you're all adults, you can make your own decisions, but we're just here to give you, I guess, information about that. Yeah. As you said, Monique, you know, there's no requirement for you guys to follow this advice. <laughs> just as psychologists, I think these are flags that we've seen. And I think the biggest thing for me is I feel like in those situations where a friendship is quite new or a relationship is quite new and there hasn't been that kind of trust built, it's almost just like the tricking of your mammal brain into feeling safe with that person, which then can trick you into feeling like you actually do owe them all of this capacity, all of this emotional energy. I think it's just very confusing at a psychological level how to interact with someone when you've immediately had a really intense, emotive, mm. connective conversation about trauma. Yeah, and I think too, it's good to remember that there may be people out there who are predators. And we've we touched on this with our episode on sexual assault, that neurodivergent women in particular are vulnerable to abuse and assault because predators will pick up on the fact that you are neurodivergent, you are different to the norm. And basically there'll be predators out there who want you to tell them all of your deepest, darkest secrets and experiences and to trauma bond with them so that they can take advantage of that and actually use it to coerce you or manipulate you. So obviously that's not the majority of people, but there is a small minority of people who will actually use that as, I guess, a psychological tactic to abuse people. So it's really important, you know, that you're aware of this and that you take those steps to do what you can to protect yourself. One point about initiation of friendships, if you are neurodivergent, is that usually I've, I've noticed that friendships are 
usually based on shared interests. Most of my friends, uh, we have a shared special interest in psychology or yoga or spirituality. I think, yeah, like when, when I think about it as a neurodivergent person, it would be difficult for me to be friends with someone that didn't share one, at least one of my interests, because it would be like, well, what are we going to talk about? It makes it easier for me in that one of my interests is human psychology and human beings. So if you're human, you probably are interesting to me and I'm motivated to engage with you. Whereas if my interests were not human related, I probably wouldn't be as interested in interacting with humans, to be honest. Like I'd be more interested in animals. That's a great point. Trains or you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. No, I think that's really interesting and and important to keep in mind because, you know, as a neurotypical person and you and I've talked about this before, Monique, but yeah, heaps of my friends, I don't really have any shared interest with. And I think a big thing for me, and, and I know that this is true for neurodivergent people as well, but I think a big thing for me is shared values. I think I find it really hard to form a connection with someone if their underlying kind of value system is different to mine. So that's probably the big thing. And then also just enjoying really analytical kind of deep conversations. Um, But otherwise, yeah, I I have plenty of friends that I, I can't really think what our shared interest would be. But we know kind of ultimately as well, whether you're neurodivergent or neurotypical, a couple of the key ingredients, I guess, in forming or initiating new friendships is things like proximity. So seeing that person regularly with no demand. So this is where no demand on the friendship is what I mean. So this is where you're like at work or at school or at uni, or you regularly hang out in the same friendship group. So it's this incidental regular contact over time that's actually been found as those key ingredients to forming new relationships. And I guess when we think about how that might play out for neurodivergent folk, I think there is actually an added challenge in that. So for neurotypicals, just having that regular uh, proximate low demand exposure, incidental exposure, we know is often enough to form friendships. And this is why lots of neurotypical kids in high school are able to form friendships with whatever random kids ended up with them at their high school, because it's that kind of regular proximal exposure. Whereas for neurodivergent folk and particularly autistic folk, yes, it's the regular exposure, but also there needs to be a shared interest. Also, there needs to be a particular point of connection. So I think that adds an extra layer of difficulty when selecting people that you might want to be friends with if you're neurodivergent compared to if you're neurotypical. And this is often why lots of neurodivergent kids have such a hard time at school because it's just a random bunch of other kids with not really many shared interests. I would agree with that. And I guess too, like even when you get to university, like for example, I didn't actually make any friends during my first four-year degree because I treated university extremely seriously in terms of it was my special interest and it really dominated my whole life. So I would go to uni to study, not to make friends. Like the purpose of uni for me personally wasn't to go and join a bunch of social clubs or hang out at the uni bar. It was like to go to lectures and to study in the library and then go home. When I think back to it, I didn't really have much incidental exposure to other people at uni because I wasn't doing those social activities and didn't really have hobbies outside of 
like studying my favorite subjects. And yeah, I would shush people in the uni lectures if they were talking about their weekend or whatever. Cause I was like, you know, I really want to hear what's going on in this lecture and I'm paying, like I actually calculated how much each lecture was costing me in hex fee, like paying 220 bucks for this lecture. And this is in the days before it was recorded. So if you didn't go, you missed out. Like, I don't want to hear about you drinking beer on the weekend when I'm paying all this money to be at uni, like shush. Do, and I would get really what, mad Monique? at them. But you know what, Monique, <laughs> I didn't do that. But if I was in a lecture with you, I would have appreciated that because I oh. was thinking that in the back really? of my head, but just like grumbling silently, uh. <laughs> but not wanting to like break the social contract of like uh. shushing someone. So I mean, for all us like just grumbly, resentful neurotypicals in that situation, yeah. thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're so welcome. I'm very happy to break the social contract. <laughs> Because they're breaking the social contract of being quiet in the lecture. They broke it first. I'm with you. I'm with you. (laughs) I appreciate you. Yeah. So I guess if you're neurodivergent, particularly I think if you're autistic and you're like working from home, you are not having, I guess, those hobbies like joining the rugby club and like playing a team sport, having that incidental exposure to people in your time off work, then it probably is going to be harder to have that proximity stuff. Because I think too, like as an an adult, once you leave school, the main proximity we have really is people at work and then people that we see on the weekends or weeknights at hobbies or other activities But a lot of autistic people and neurodivergent people are so drained by just trying to get through the day and like maybe working full time that often you don't really feel like going out or doing anything on weeknights and weekends and you're recovering. So yeah, that can be part of the reason why I think a lot of autistic people will find friends online, you know, while gaming or doing doing activities that refresh or restore them. Yeah, that's so funny that you uh, say that, Monique. I was just about to say the same thing where I think online internet friends are totally valid. And this is where you can sometimes get that repetitive exposure because a lot of internet friends are made around, you know, like a forum about a particular thing or gaming or a subreddit thread on a particular topic or, you know, whatever the case might be. So I think there's a lot of stigma around internet friends, but they're very valid. And I think lots of neurodivergent people connect really well with people over the internet. So something else Monique and I wanted to cover in this episode is our underlying attachment needs and trauma triggers and how these things can actually play into friendship relationships. We often hear a lot about how they play into relationships with family members, how they play into romantic relationships, but less so about friendships. Being really aware of our own triggers and what we hear when people say certain things or when they are able or not able to meet certain needs, I think is really key because so many relationships, friendships, I feel like, end over really small in the scheme of things, misunderstandings and miscommunications, which is oftentimes related to someone's trigger coming up, someone's attachment trigger coming up, someone's childhood trigger coming up, someone's trauma trigger coming up, and either that person not being aware of it or not being able to articulate that in a way that's meaningful to their friendship partner. 
Yeah, definitely. I I think that it's really good to be aware of your attachment style. Be aware of the impact, I think, that your attachment relationships as a child have had on you because often, you know, the relationship that we have with our parents is the first relationship that we form and how our parents interacted with us and the patterns that we witnessed growing up in families they really do play out in lots of other types of relationships and how we interpret different like relationship triggers or communication between people. And yeah, often there's a lot of emphasis on how they play out in romantic relationships, but not as much in things like workplaces or friendships. And, you know, if you've had a history of childhood trauma, it does play out in terms of your friendships with people. So yeah, it's really good to go to therapy or develop awareness of how does your attachment style interact with trying to form and maintain friendships if that's something that's important to you. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you're finding that you're having a really big reaction to something that on the surface is, you know, on paper, doesn't seem like that big of a deal. It's really important to just sit with that feeling for a moment and think about, okay, why am I having this reaction? What's underneath this? You know, you've got your kind of surface level. Oh, it's because this person said this and this thing happened. Okay. And why is that hurtful to me? Right. So you're kind of peeling back the onion a little bit to better understand what's driving that response and that emotional reaction. Yeah. So there's a type of therapy that I'm trained in called EMDR therapy or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. So it's a type of trauma therapy, basically. And I really love this type of therapy because. It helped me make sense of how, I guess, if things happen to us when we're younger, and even if they're those small T traumas that we talked about in the trauma episode in season one, they may not look like traumas where your life is at risk, but they could be more relational traumas, you know, or attachment traumas, right? With attachment needs. And and chronic relationship traumas. Yeah, absolutely. Like with your need for safety and emotional safety and your emotional needs, like chronically not being met or even like cues of rejection or being criticized, you know, by parents or being in the school system by other kids or teachers, those can actually form what we call hot memories. So hot memories or hot stuff in EMDR basically occurs when you go through an experience, you know, as a child or an adult, that was so overwhelming for you that the ability for you to process that experience in the moment was shut down. And, you know, when you go to bed and you're having your REM sleep, that's usually when our brain goes and processes the emotions, the memories of what's happened that day, that processing ends up getting kind of stuck because of that overwhelming emotional response. And it means that that stuff kind of gets stuck in our brain as hot stuff. And what then ends up happening is it's sort of there in our brain lingering below the surface. And then later on in life as an adult, if something happens to you or something occurs that triggers up that old hot stuff. So it could be maybe someone looked at you in the same way that you were looked at when you had that hot memory not be processed or someone um, criticizes you or 
there's a big emotional cue in a relationship, your reaction is going to be bigger than what it would be if you didn't have all of that hot stuff from your childhood also getting triggered up and activated and overwhelming you emotionally. If you didn't have hot stuff, what would happen is that uh, relationship trigger in the moment would be upsetting, but you might be able to bring in your logical brain and kind of think through it and react to it more logically. Whereas when we're triggered by our hot stuff and unprocessed trauma, then the logical part of the brain actually gets shut down and overwhelmed and we're kind of lost in our emotions. And that's where your negative beliefs might really come in and start really going for you. That's where you'll experience intense emotions and that's where you might also experience intense body sensations. So it's a much more intense reaction than if you didn't have that old hot stuff on top of the trigger in the now. Yeah, it's essentially like you're responding to what's happening now, but also at the exact same time responding to what happened then, what formed those hot memories. And obviously you know that you haven't mentally time traveled. Um, So your brain is trying to make sense of that by all of these feelings that are coming up because of what happened then being projected onto what's happening now. And if you're not aware of these processes taking place, what often happens is we interpret that or apply meaning to that as, oh yeah, I was this upset about this thing that happened now. When really, as you explained, Monique, a lot of that really intense stuff is coming from what happened then. Yeah. And I guess the thing is, you know, this theory within this particular trauma therapy is that we all collect hot stuff if we're exposed to overwhelming experiences, like over our lifetime. And sometimes the more you're exposed to and the less resources you have at the time to process it, your overall load of hot memories grows as you get older. And so it's with trauma therapies like EMDR that they aim to go and process that past stuff so that you're going to still have reactions to things in the now, but you'll have a reaction in the now, like as an adult and being able to draw upon your adult resources to try and get through that experience without also having all of the past stuff really flare up for you and add to that level of overwhelming emotional experience. And I think for autistic individuals and ADHDers, a huge emotion that's triggered is often shame in relationships because of early experiences, early relational experiences. And we know, you know, for ADHDers in childhood, they experience a huge amount more of negative feedback around their behaviors and their interactions because of that impulsivity. And so once we get to adulthood, a lot of that stuff has been or remains as hot memories. And then when anyone is triggering or kind of acting in a way that triggers that sense of rejection or disapproval or criticism, a lot of those really intense shame emotions can come up. Yeah, I do think that a lot of ADHD and particularly ADHD women are just so incredibly hard on themselves and like harsh and self-critical and often when they're describing a social situation that they've been in 
they really beat themselves up about, you know, making a social mistake or an error and are so much harder on themselves than probably the other person would be. And I think that's where actually checking in with the other person and doing some testing of that is important in terms of, hey, I feel like I really, you know, beeped up in this situation with you. I'm really upset about it. I'm like thinking I'm such a bad person you know, how do you feel about it? Are you, are you upset? Like, I want to make sure you're okay. And the feedback that you might actually get back is, oh, like, I don't even realize that you thought that situation didn't go well, or I just thought it was a minor thing. It doesn't really bother me. And, and so you might actually discover that, yeah, maybe because of the negative experiences that you've had in the past, you might actually be overrating how negative something is or overly beating yourself up. I think the hot stuff too um, does come into place with rejection sensitivity in friendships and relationships. Like if you're an ADHD and you've had like a secure attachment relationship, like you don't have a lot of hot stuff or overwhelming or traumatic experiences, you haven't had people be super critical and mean to you, I don't know if you would have as much rejection sensitivity as maybe another ADHD that did have a history of trauma and rejection and a lot of that hot stuff built up so that they're expecting rejection and really having that emotionally intense experience in social interactions. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think how we respond to rejection is really dependent on our past experiences with rejection. And it's a great point about ADHD is who have a secure attachment base. You know, my husband's perfect example of that. He's the least rejection sensitive person I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, like to the point where sometimes I'm like, maybe you should think about your impact. <laughs> <laughs> my no, husband no. is too, actually. Like, yeah. I don't know, maybe we should do a case study on them. I but know. Like, <laughs> maybe it's maybe- a thing. <laughs> I do. I do wonder actually if it's a gender thing, yeah. like a socialize, a socialization thing, you know, it'd be interesting to ask, I guess. Yeah. So we've talked about how trauma and attachment can have an effect on friendships. Now, I think it would be great for us to have a chat about what happens if a trigger has come up, how to resolve that and have a chat about conflict resolution skills. Because again, I think this is a topic that most people need skill training on. Again, whether you're neurodivergent or neurotypical. Yeah, and I think it does come back to how we were taught or not taught conflict resolution skills in childhood. There's that old kind of adage around, it's not good not to, as parents, not to never have a disagreement in front of your kids because that doesn't teach them how you actually resolve the disagreement. But it's also not good to have completely emotionally dysregulated disagreements because that's not good conflict resolution either. Unfortunately, most of us don't really have a great model from childhood about how, what does healthy conflict resolution look like? And so a lot of that work has been covered in adulthood and it's something that we've kind of learned as adults. But even with that, I I just want to flag too, it can be hard. And part of that is because whenever we're engaged in a conflict, 
old triggers are going to come up. That's just part of how our brains are set up, how our psychology is set up. So go easy on yourself. If you notice some of your old conflict management styles seeping into a conflict resolution with someone, all you can do in that moment is just try and regulate, take a break, and then come back and try again. So before we go into talking about specific skills or steps in healthy conflict resolution, we wanted to just chat uh, more generally about the idea of rupture and repair. So I think this is something that is often surprising to people in friendship relationships that ruptures are really normal. You know, in any relationship with any human being, it's normal to have points where you're annoyed at that person, or there's a bit of a communication breakdown, or something didn't go the way that one or both people wanted it to go. So when we're entering every relationship, no matter what type of relationship that is, with the awareness that ruptures will happen, it's kind of like what you were saying earlier, Monique, about noticing patterns in things to make things more predictable. If we know a rupture is going to happen, and you know it's not if, it's when, then at least when it does happen, we can feel less shocked or surprised by it. Then the next step with a rupture is, okay, what's the repair? How do we actually mend that rupture? Yeah, it's good to have realistic expectations of your friendships and relationships. And this part of this is having the expectation that there will be friction points or ruptures that happen, but a lot of people haven't been taught how to actually repair the rupture um, and repair the relationship. One of the examples that I've seen in particularly autistic people can be, I guess, having that more rule-based thinking. You know, if you have your own rules about how a friendship quote unquote should be or should go and the person that you're friends with breaks that rule, sometimes there can be a tendency to cut off the person abruptly and go, well, they broke the rule, therefore they're no longer my friend. And so it's just being aware in that moment, like what's more important to you is maybe being right more important to you than having that person as a friend. How important is that friendship actually to you? Is it worth the effort of, you know, making a repair attempt? Those are things that you may have to weigh up and and make some decisions and choices on. And I think too, it's part of having realistic expectations is that, you know, your rules for how a friendship should go might be different to the other person's rules and expectations. So having communication, being able to bring it up and go, hey, you broke my rule. Do you have the same rules as me? Like, what do we want the rules for our friendship to be? How do we want to handle these things, you know, when they happen? And maybe even talking about it explicitly, if you've built up a level of trust, how do we want to handle rupture and repair? And actually making that more predictable could be useful. So it could be, you know, potentially knowing that if you're in a friendship with someone at some point, you may need to compromise with that person. And, you know, you may need to bend your rules a little bit and be a bit more flexible to realistically have friendships. That's something that's important to know. But it also may be in terms of navigating the repair, saying to the other person, when I get really overwhelmed, I might actually end up not being able to communicate with you. If we have a fight or a disagreement, it could be really hard for me to be verbal at that time. Let's maybe have like timeout or a cooling off period. And then, you know, let's try and re-engage within a couple of days or maybe a week. 
Or it could be, I find conflict face-to-face really difficult. Can we actually talk through text or messenger and hash it out that way? And that can be how a lot of neurodivergent people actually work through conflict. So usually a rupture occurs when you maybe disagree about a subject or a value. There's been a boundary that's been crossed and you may not know that, you know, that boundary exists for you until it's been crossed, or it may be a boundary that you have set or you are aware of. Or it could be that there's a clash with your needs or expectations or the other person's needs and expectations of the friendship. What the rupture means is that you might feel upset or pissed off or uncomfortable or the other person feels upset, pissed off, uncomfortable. You may not feel like you want to engage with that person or speak with them and actually you want to, yeah, like maybe not have any communication with them for a while. And so the important thing is to actually let them know that and say, hey, I'm feeling overwhelmed right now. I need a bit of a break to sit with how I'm feeling and work out why am I feeling this way and then get back to you because this friendship is important to me. So it's making sure you actually say that, you know, I'm, I'm being, I'm taking care with this and I'm putting in effort to analyze why am I feeling this way, but I'm not going to be able to do that in the moment because I'm too overwhelmed, you know, and you've let the person know that you care about the friendship, but there'll be a delayed response. And then it might be doing it in writing and communicating, Hey, when you said or did X, Y, Z, this is what got triggered up for me. Um, I felt like you didn't care about me or the friendship or I felt left out or I felt confused. And you kind of explain why. And then you check in with the other person. Is this how you interpreted the situation? What are your needs in this situation? So it's making sure that it's mutual. You're having a chance to explain what the rupture was for you. And then you check in with the other person. Do you feel there was a rupture? What was that like for you? So the other person has a chance of being heard as well. And then you go from there and try and adopt, I guess, a problem solving viewpoint of, okay, well, we've both had our feelings hurt or our needs not being met, or it's one person has and the other person disagrees. Where are we going to go from here and start problem solving? What does the other person need to feel safe in the relationship? What do I need to feel safe in the relationship again and reestablish trust? Because that's what it's all about. It's trust that the other person's not deliberately out to hurt you or make you miserable. It may be that there was a miscommunication or a mistake made and it's having faith in each other to be able to work it out. Yeah, I think a big part of that is coming at it from the mindset of it's us against the problem that's occurred. It's not me against you. It's not I was right and you were wrong or vice versa. And what you're talking there, Monique, about the idea of safety, I think a really key component in that is a lot of the time when we communicate something in a relationship and we might say, this is how I interpreted it. This was what was going on for me underneath. This is why I felt this way. Sometimes the other person hearing that that can make them feel quite defensive because what the other person is hearing is you did X, Y, Z with the intention of making me feel this way. 
Right. And so what the other person often does then is spend all their time explaining what their intention was. Oh, no, no, no. I didn't mean to do that. I I did it because of this. I did it because of that, which is great. It's good to understand everyone's intentions in those situations. But I think the other layer, and this is where we actually get emotional safety and trust, is acknowledging the impact of your actions on someone else, which might have nothing to do with your intentions and might actually have nothing to do with you either. You know, it might be all their other stuff coming up, all their hot stuff, their triggers, whatever, but it goes a long way to establishing emotional trust and safety. If you can say, I'm so sorry that made you feel that way. That wasn't my intention, but I totally see that that felt so horrible for you. In the future, I'm going to be really on top of trying not to communicate to you in that way or, you know, whatever the issue was. And what that does is it establishes with that person, I see you and you're valid to feel this way. Even though it wasn't my intention, you're still validating their experience. And that validation is so, so crucial because otherwise what it ends up in or what it can end up in is just almost like two lawyers presenting their case. <laughs> like, well, this is what, what happened for me and this is what happened for me. And we disagree with that, but I acknowledge that that was your experience. You really need the emotive component too. You need the validation. You need the connection. You need the acknowledgement of the impact of your actions, even if it wasn't your intention. Yeah, I think most people don't have a direct intention of hurting somebody else. I think that's really important to keep in mind. It's that we're all human. We're all imperfect. We're not going to say and do things perfectly. But part of building that trust in a friendship and a relationship with someone over time is that you know, you do give each other leeway or you learn the skills to negotiate conflict, repair and like forgive and know that the other person might really want to be your friend and not have an intention of hurting your feelings. But if there's like an acknowledgement, there's a repair, you can forgive and move on. Yeah, for sure. And I love what you were saying there, Monique, about that leeway and coming at it from the perspective of it's very unlikely that this person is intentionally trying to make me feel like crap. Um, This is just part of being two humans bumping along together, sometimes bumping into each other. And sometimes, and this is just what I found personally, sometimes when you do some of the work of working out why you've had the reaction that you've had or why something has been so tricky for you or so hard or maybe why it's triggered something or what's come up for you. I've had the experience of that actually just being enough and not actually even needing to take it to the other person. So thinking, okay, this is why I had such a big reaction to this or this felt so overwhelming for me. Great. Now I know what I'm going to do about that or how I'm going to put in place some boundaries around that potentially. And this is where that understanding of what boundaries are is so crucial because boundaries are things that you do that we do ourselves they're not things that other people do so boundaries are something that explains or dictates what our behavior is going to be like for instance if someone punches me in the face I'm going to leave (laughs) rather than I'm not going to let other people punch me in the face How can you possibly police that? You're not in control of other people's bodies or arms. It's about how you're going to respond to those situations. Yeah. And I guess like something that you learn as you get older is you learn to differentiate between like what's my stuff 
you know, and what's my stuff to deal with and take responsibility for and what's other people's stuff. And yeah, that can be a big thing that plays out in friendships and all types of relationships. Sometimes you might take over responsibility for other people's stuff. Sometimes you might take under responsibility for your own stuff, you know, and that's part of learning what those boundaries are. (laughs) I'm perfect. No, No, I think think that is such a good point. Yeah. Differentiating that what's mine and what's theirs. A lot of the time in conflicts, it's actually the person's like, it's their stuff. You know, it's their hot stuff that is usually like 80% of what's going on. And even if someone's being actually genuinely being mean to you, 80% of the time, it's because of their hot stuff that they haven't dealt with, to be honest. Yeah. And this is where those really good boundaries can come into place, where it's like, if you've worked out, okay, this is actually mostly their stuff and I don't actually need to be involved in managing that or or helping them through that. I'm going to put a boundary in place that's going to dictate how I am going to respond when they behave in this way towards me. You know, maybe it's I'm just if they're messaging me repetitively, I'm just going to turn my phone on silent, not answer them. I'm going to take a little break. I'm going to put them in a different friendship box, right? We were talking before around expectations of different relationships. So yeah, sometimes it is that what's my stuff, what's theirs and what boundaries am I going to put in place to manage this? And just one other thing to say when we're chatting about conflict resolution is I find a really big point of friction or conflict between people can be a misinterpretation as to whether someone wants support in that moment or if they want a lesson. So if someone is wanting a lesson, that means that they may be venting to you or maybe explaining a problem or something. And what they actually want from you is advice or tips on how to solve that problem. And that's a situation where that person in that particular situation is experiencing a skills deficit, right? They're like, I don't know how to do this, or I don't have the knowledge or skills to solve this problem. And I would really like your expertise and your advice to help me solve that problem. More often though, what the person is requesting in those situations is support. So they might be talking to you about something or venting about something or explaining a problem that they're having. And the need that they are trying to get met through that interaction is validation, connection, and support. So if someone is expressing that need and we come in with a solution, what actually then happens is a huge friction point. And this is kind of a a great example of everything that we've talked about today, where it then ends up in a really big argument, particularly in romantic relationships, um, but it can end up in a big argument where each person is arguing about a different thing. The person who wanted support is saying, I really wanted to feel seen in this moment. I really want a connection and I really wanted emotional support. The person who gave the lesson is saying, I have a really great way for you to solve this problem and you're rejecting my amazing skill set that I'm bringing into this situation. So, you know, I just wanted to flag that because it often is a hot area. And I think really just thinking about what is the person needing from me in this situation or this interaction can then help avoid that conflict, but then also resolve that conflict if there is a rupture and you do need to go through the repair process. Yeah, definitely. And I guess it's just looking at, again, like with a friendship, it's a mutual relationship. And, you know, if the other person's upset and what they're looking for is support, 
and that's part of the expectations of your friendship, then yeah, like that is part of your role in terms of being the person's friend is to provide that support. And then, you know, if something upsetting happens for you, it's mutual. So, you know, you'll receive support in return. Or if you prefer advice, you know, you'll receive that in return. And I think that even just being really clear when you're going to talk to someone and say, hey, I'd really love your advice on this. Or, hey, I really just want to vent about something that's happened. Can you just listen? Or, you know, whatever feels natural for you. But flagging what you need can Mm -hmm. be really helpful. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us further, you can do so by subscribing to our Patreon. To become part of our Patreon community, you can buy us a coffee for $5 per month or a wine for $10 per month. All of our Patreon subscribers receive access to a backlog of exclusive content and to a monthly live Zoom hangout with us and our Patreon community. Our Zoom hangouts are a place to ask questions, chat about your experiences, and connect with other neurodivergent women. From this season onward, all Patreons will also receive basic episode transcripts released each week after our episode airs. Patreons shouting us to a monthly wine get all that plus one exclusive content post per month. We really appreciate your support as we aim to make quality mental health information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website, ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.